This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. This is Fresh Air. I am Terry Gross. The much-anticipated sci-fi movie Dune Part 2 opens in theaters Friday. Its director, Denis Villeneuve, spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger about making Dune Part 1 and 2 and the rest of his film career. Here's Sam. My guest Denis Villeneuve was a teenager when he read the 1965 novel Dune by Frank Herbert. He was already a fan of science fiction, but Dune was a huge inspiration for him. Even at an early age, he wanted to make it into a movie. After successes making films like Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, he got the chance. His movie Dune Part 1 came out in 2021 to critical and commercial success. Now he's directed Dune Part 2, which comes out on Friday. Dune Part 2 takes place in the distant future, mostly on the harsh desert planet Arrakis, after the feudal house Atreides has been wiped out in a conspiracy between the Galactic Emperor and their enemies the Harkonnens, including the head of Atreides, Duke Leto. But Leto's son, Paul, and Paul's mother, Jessica, played by Timothée Chalamet and Rebecca Ferguson, escape the attack and are taken in by the indigenous people of Arrakis called the Fremen. The Harkonnens have regained control of Arrakis, and Paul and Jessica have joined the Fremen's insurgency against them. Many of the Fremen think that Paul might be a prophesized messiah figure that will help them regain control of their planet. But Paul is wary of these prophecies. He has had premonitions that if he takes on the mantle of prophet, he will set in motion a terrible galactic genocide. The movie follows the choices he makes while pursuing his revenge against the Harkonnens. Along with Chalamet and Ferguson, Dune Part 2 stars Zendaya, Javier Bardem, Florence Pugh, Austin Butler, Charlotte Rampling, Josh Brolin, Dave Bautista, and Christopher Walken. Denis Villeneuve's other films include Sicario and Prisoners. Denis Villeneuve, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. You wanted to make this movie for a long time. How old were you when you read it? I read the first book at 13, but then I, there, there's many books and uh, my love for Dune went on through the years. So let's say I discovered between 13 and 14 years old. Yeah. So what were you drawn to in that first book? I think that the idea that uh, a boy uh, finds home in, a, in uh, another culture uh, that uh, feels comfortable in a, in a foreign country, that really moved me at that time. And uh, also I was in love with uh, biology when I was a, a student. And uh, it's something that I, I was mesmerized how Frank Herbert used ecology uh, to express himself. It really uh, deeply moved me. And, and you thought about early on, like making this book into a movie, like you were, you made storyboards for it. Like how old were you when you did that? Did, did that happen right after you read it? Yeah, well, uh, in my uh, around yeah around the same period of time, uh, me and my best friend Nicola Kedzma, who Nicola had, uh, was a very strong uh, at drawing, and uh, me I was very bad. So, <laughs> but I was good at telling stories, and we started that, that our friendship was born from that dream of of uh, that one day we could be filmmakers. Mm. It's the way we met, and uh, we didn't have any cameras at the time, but we. We, uh, I was writing stories and Nicola was drawing them, and uh, and we had like uh, uh, inspired from the book. We had started to to uh, do some drawings uh, about the the 
the making of Dune, but that that was like very old dreams. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this was before David Lynch's version of the movie came out in 1984. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So you've been thinking about this book visually for a long time. So what was it like for you to see someone make this book into a movie and to see someone's interpretation of this book that you love so much? I was very excited when I learned that uh, the, the the book will be brought to the screen. And uh, it's something that uh, um, I remember uh, uh, watching the movie and, and being very uh, um, mesmerized and impressed by uh, how David Lynch approached it. I was also destabilized by some of his choices. And, um, because that's because not how you would have done it, right? Yeah, it, uh, um, David Lynch has a very strong identity as a filmmaker, mm-hmm. of course, and, and it guided into the, the, of course, it's a fantastic uh, interpretation of the book, but uh, there were some choices that were made that was very far away from my sensibility. And uh, I, I remember uh, watching the movie, saying to myself, someday someone else would do it again in the future. <laughs> it will happen because... I didn't feel that he captured uh, some of the essence of, of um, specifically about the Fremen culture. I felt mm-hmm. that there was some things that were missing. And uh, it's like, uh, that's the nature of adaptation, you know. It's like, uh, so I I was expecting someone else to, to come back with uh, the project uh, at one point, yeah. And that turned out to be you. Actually. Yeah, which is, uh, I'm still pitching myself. Yeah. <laughs> In Dune Part 1, you have to spend time setting the scene. Like, this is a very complicated and very strange universe. Story takes place on multiple worlds. There are these competing power factions, including secret societies. How did you decide how much you were going to have to explain versus how much you were just going to show? It's a fine line. Um, I tried to find a balance, trying to... uh, uh, I tried to make the movie as cinematic as possible. The first decision was to focus this adaptation on the Bene Gesserit sister power. The, that sisterhood that controls the politics from the shadows, that use religion as, as a political tool. And uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, school of thought in Dune. There's a lot of different... Uh, 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 there's the Manta, the Spacing Guild. There's a lot of... Uh, um, group of people uh, uh, and I, I focused on, on the Bene Gesserit sisters um, and then in part one uh, the idea was to really see the reality through this young man's uh, eyes to be, the, the camera will be just above Paul Atreides shoulder and that we will de- the, the reality of the, the, the movie will unfold slowly through his eyes. So it's a movie that uh, is much more meditative, contemplative. Mm-hmm. And the boy is an old teenager in, the, in part one. So he's, a, he's a, let's say, a victim of the events. He has no control. He's just, he's a, he just tried to survive. So, uh, uh, which is the opposite. In part two, it's a totally the opposite. He became active. He became a, mm-hmm. a, a, a guerrilla a fighter and, and take control of our, his own destiny. And it's like, a, um, so the second movie was meant to be more of an action movie. When you say you try to make it as cinematic as possible, you, by that you mean not using just a lot of exposition dialogue, right? If I could have made movies with one without any dialogue, it would have been paradise. <laughs> I'm, I, 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 dialogues for me are, belong to theater huh. or television. I mean, it's like I'm not someone who remember movies because of their lines. I remember movies because of their images 
because of the the the, the ideas that are are being uh, uh, hidden or unfold through images and uh, uh, that's the power of cinema for me it's not about dialogue and uh, and uh, i i hope one day i will be able to make a movie with uh, with uh, without with as less dialogue as possible yeah, you, with dune is a bit it was a, a bit uh, difficult but uh, yeah. that's my goal yeah have you thought of making a silent movie sometime i i, I will be definitely tempted yes hmm. <laughs> by the way that's why silent movies were so powerful mm-hmm. and that, that's still today the best movies i mean it's like uh, normally uh, uh, a great movie you should be able to watch it without sound and uh, that's that's uh, that the ultimate uh, goal yeah so were there lessons that you learned from making dune part one that um you applied to making part two multiple and it would be boring to mention all of them but there was I would let's say that there's something about the rhythmic of uh, uh, my mise-en-scene you know how uh, I can convey ideas through choreographies and, and the movement of camera and trying to be more efficient I was trying to find an energy that uh, I found more in part two and uh, also uh, being more uh, um, agile with uh, uh, visual effects and more specifically, I will say where I think there was a lot of improvement is, is in their screenwriting, uh, trying to be more cinematic. But the, the project itself, the nature of the project itself, was uh, uh, allowed me to go to something much more playful cinematically. You actually film a lot of the movie in the desert. And I was just wondering like, what complications that brought up. Like, Were you always worried about getting sand in the camera? The complication is first... To bring a full unit deep in the desert requires a lot of logistic for to protect the crew. And like, how many people are in a unit? Uh, uh, several hundreds. Several hundred. Uh, well. Maybe in Jordan we're at eight hundred sometime uh, or, oh. or some. I could not give a number for Abu Dhabi exactly because it, but uh, several hundreds people that uh, uh, because at one point you need people to take care of people. <laughs> right. It's just it's just the the the, stru- the the structure of the base camp. We had to build roads. Uh, eco-friendly roads, I, I must say, uh, roads that uh, don't exist anymore, but that at the time uh, were meant to to build to bring the trucks deep into the desert and a path also a, a, a um, sidewalk that, that 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 to bring the the the, the crew uh, where I wanted them to be. It's there was a massive logistic that was deployed. To uh, to have like shelters to uh, to protect actors and the film crew from the heat, and uh, uh, the heat was uh, our enemy. I mean, there was right. a period of time in the middle of the day where I, I, I've it was the soup mode that you felt that your brain was cooking. It wow. was like really, um, uh, I had to bring the crew uh, away from the sun uh, a couple of uh, in the middle of the day. It was too warm. It's the big challenge also is that, and that I'm fully responsible for that, is that I wanted to shoot the movie as much with natural light as possible. I mean, we shot entirely with, uh, exclusively with natural light in the desert, which meant that uh, uh, in order to make no compromise aesthetically, uh, it uh, drove my first assistant crazy because it (laughs) meant that uh, you, you had to, according to sun position, to deconstruct the whole shooting schedule according to the sunlight, sun position. And it was for, uh, and my cinematographer and I, uh, and for the actors, quite a crazy puzzle. Yeah. So that, that means that if you're shooting one scene and then you want to do it again or add on to that scene, the next day you have to wait till the sun's in the same position? Yeah, for some, for some scenes specifically, yes. Or to uh, deconstruct the scene in different areas in the desert 
so you can have max, the maximum aesthetic quality for the shot, but it meant that an actor could throw a line to another actor in two different locations. Yeah. That's if people say, okay, that we can do. But when it becomes 12 locations or 14 locations, <laughs> yeah. it becomes a bit complex for the crew. <laughs> one of the most stunning scenes in the movie is when Paul first rides um, one of the sandworms. And the sandworms are these huge creatures that live in the desert. And the indigenous people ride on the backs of them. So, so Paul goes up, stands up on top of the sand dune, attracts this worm using this sort of mechanism that that creates sound waves. And you're looking off into the horizon and you see this cloud of sand and you it's sort of like Jaws, like you the, the sandworm is approaching. He has to jump on the top of it using these hooks to attach to it. And it's kind of like riding a train, but the, the sandworm is more the size of um, a skyscraper kind of on its side. And you've said that this was the most complex scene you've ever done. Can you talk about what it took to get it? First of all, I'm very pleased that you mentioned Jaws because it is the exactly <laughs> the reference I used at the beginning when I was uh, in part one, I was uh, with the VFX crew saying that I was in love with the idea that you could know the presence of the sandworm just by seeing suddenly the, sh- the landscape shifting in the distance. You didn't hear nothing, but just suddenly a sand dunes appeared. So there, that's the, I, I absolutely love uh, uh, how it's more frightening to not seeing the beast than not actually seeing it. And uh, uh, so Jaws was a very important uh, reference for the sandworm. And uh, um, this moment where someone rides a, a, a sandworm, it's a very important moment in the book, but it's kind of uh, uh, suggested. I mean, it, there's part of it that are quite vague, how you get actually on the worm. <laughs> so that was one of the first thing I had to decide is how I will make this believable. Mm. How I will believe that a human could actually get on top of that beast. And and uh, first of all, I had to think about the behavior of the beast. For me, a sandworm is a, is a it's a powerful creature, but it's a very shy creature, and it's a creature mm. that doesn't want to be at the surface. It's a creature from the underground, and and uh, wants to expose itself as less as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the way Fremen rides with the worm. I love the idea that when you look at a Fremen in the desert, he he, he looks like a, a motorbike rider. It's like the worm is under the surface. Right. It's like Just he looks the... like a surfer, and. Uh, um, it, it's inspired from different uh, extreme sport, like mm-hmm. uh, people who are jumping in ski uh, on uh, high peaks in the in the wild, and so I designed the the the, the way someone could uh, jump on a, on a, on a worm. I I did the diagrams, and I ex- explained that to the crew. There was like a kind of seminar where I explained to my crew how actually how to ride a sandworm exactly how to ride a sandworm first and once I explained that I said how we will do it then there was a big silence (laughs) because I didn't want to make any compromises I wanted to be as real as possible and and uh, in order to do that, we had to use what, the most powerful tool we, we, we had in our hands, which is natural light. Mm. And uh, uh, it meant that uh, uh, this sequence would be shot uh, over the course of, uh, of uh, many weeks. And, and uh, uh, in order to do so, uh, I had to uh, figure out a way to split myself. 
because it was not possible to to be a, um, to if I had done that worm ride myself, I would I would still be shooting right now. Right. So it meant that uh, I will be I will need to be at two places at the same time. There will be uh, I was directing my main unit as there was what we call the worm unit. The worm unit was a, a special dedicated crew that uh, were uh, uh, doing the according to my specs and the storyboards and the tech vids, were uh, uh, doing the, all the research and development. Each shot required a specific, specific way of shooting that uh, has not been done before. And it, we, uh, um, I was like uh, uh, giving them precise instruction. That crew was under the supervision of my wife, Tanya Lapointe. So that was so, happening simultaneously while yeah, the yeah. rest of the movie was being yeah, filmed. Yeah, that was the most difficult thing for me to do because... Cinema is an act of presence. Mm -hmm. It's like uh, I'm used to work with one camera at the time. Uh, I'm very old-fashioned in that regard. Uh, it was uh, by far the most challenging but rewarding creative experience of my life. At what point did you have the idea that you might want to make movies and that there was this person like a director whose job it was to actually create the films that you were watching as a kid? It's something that happened progressively. As a kid, uh, I was a dreamer. I was reading a lot of books, and I absolutely loved cinema. And, of course, I discovered at the time a lot of movies through television. Mm -hmm. I remember the first time I saw the beginning of uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm -hmm. That was like really like uh, uh, absolutely frightening. It brought a lot of uh, beautiful anxiety in me. <laughs> I remember the shock of it. Uh, uh, and I just watching the opening because I, after that, my parents wanted me to go to bed. But <laughs> I, I remember the first time I saw Duel as a kid being very uh, impressed by the power of the ideas of creating a, a, a being with a truck. And, and uh, then learning later that there was something else called Jaws that I was too terrified to watch, but, uh, uh, and then Close Encounter of the Third Kind. And it's like just, and then there was always a name attached to these movies that was, and, and this name was Steven Spielberg. And then I started to being more interested about what it meant to be a director. And I, I was absolutely, at 13 years old or something like that, absolutely fascinated by the idea of, of uh, the power of this, uh, the, that tool, the camera. I didn't have any camera in my life, <laughs> but I was fascinated. I, there was something so romantic, so powerful about making uh, 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 movies. And um, I became obsessed with, uh, with the idea of filmmaker. And I met this friend, Nicola Kadima at the time, who had the same passion as, uh, as me. Um, t Nicola wanted to redo Star Wars in his basement. That's the way we I was introduced to him. Said, "There's a friend of mine who said you want to need you need to meet that guy. He's as crazy as you." <laughs> and and we we started to we did some short films together, and we were like uh, uh, obsessed trying to find you. That's when I I, I uh, we discovered Einstein, Leos Carax, Jean Luc Godard. Uh, um, Francois Truffaut, Francis Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, Scorsese. We were like uh, 
spons like sponges hmm. trying to discover movies and it, it at the beginning it was not easy because there was no v, VHS at that time at that period of time at the birth no, at the wasn't. beginning it was just the beginning you know it was like mm -hmm. uh, there was not a lot of thing available it was and um, yeah it was uh, but it was, those were exciting times Denis Villeneuve is the director of Dune Part 2 which arrives in theaters on Friday his other films include Dune Part 1, Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, Arrival, and Prisoners. He'll be back after a short break. I'm Sam Brigger, and this is Fresh Air. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Selling your car? Visit Carvana and enter your license plate or VIN. Answer a few quick questions and you can get a real offer in seconds. When you finalize your offer, Carvana will pick it up so you never have to leave the comfort of home. Visit Carvana.com or download the app. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit podcast from NPR. With NPR Plus, there's more to hear, like extended interviews with some of the experts we talk to at Planet Money and The Indicator. It's a mistake for economists to only think about economic efficiency when considering policies because you'll actually wind up with a worse outcome. And with NPR Plus, you help keep NPR going. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Hi there, it's Tanya Mosley, here to share more about my new series of Fresh Air Plus bonus episodes. I love when he casts his mom in movies. It feels so authentic. I know. You know, she was also in the film Goodfellas, which yeah. I also love. I need to get that screenplay, by the way. I don't have that one. <laughs> For the next few weeks leading up to the Academy Awards... I'll be talking about all of my favorite movies with my colleague, Anne-Marie Baldonado. If you want to hear what movies I love and which screenplays I actually own and use as creative direction, sign up for Fresh Air Plus at plus.npr.org. This is Fresh Air. I'm Sam Brigger. I'm speaking with director Denis Villeneuve, whose movie Dune Part 2 comes out this Friday. His other movies include Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, Dune Part 1, Arrival, and Prisoners. Uh, Danny, you, you've told the story before about how you got into science fiction as a kid. Your aunt brought you this box of magazines, and it contained some issues of this sci-fi magazine. Can you tell us that story? It's a very, very important moment in my life. It's like uh, one day uh, my aunt, you get... Uh, came back, who was in love uh, with the science fiction and the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars, etc. She was like always bringing, she brought home three boxes filled with magazines, which were like monthly uh, or weekly graphic novels, uh, Metal Hurlant or uh, Tintin magazine, which were like filled with all those stories from those uh, uh, authors from uh, Europe, like Bilal, Druyet, Christin, uh, uh, Jean-Paul Dionnet, uh, Moebius, those masters that absolutely uh, uh, 
made that huge revolution in the 70s, uh, went so far creating those worlds. As a kid, it really was a, it was an electroshock. Hmm. It was like a, really like a massive, uh, my brain I don't know if my brain melted or exploded, <laughs> but I'm still uh, haunted by those boxes, the mm-hmm. power of creativity that was in those boxes. Metal, Erlans, um was known in the U.S. as heavy metal, but here it was more decidedly R-rated. I think that you've said that it was a different magazine that you read. It is true that the the, the English ver- American version was, was much more for adult, mm-hmm. which was not the case for the, the European version. It was uh, 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 more about pure sci-fi. So what intrigued you about science fiction? Like, were you drawn to the spaceships and technology? Or did you appreciate um, what Ray Bradbury said about science fiction, that it's the history of ideas? Wow, that's a nice quote. I, I, um, I never heard that before. I will say that it's like a, a, a way to, to digest reality and to... Uh, uh, explore it uh, uh, in a very poetic way, mm. and and uh, it's a, in a way the ultimate way of dreaming because you project yourself in the future. It's an act of hope, and uh, I think that I've been raised, uh, being raised in a village, very tiny village, where there was two structures. One of them was the church, the other one was a nuclear power plant, and I, I was raised between both powers, mm. <laughs> and the idea of having that nuclear power plant in the horizon, that power, the nuclear power, with what everything what it meant. Uh, uh, at the time, I was uh, raised in the 70s with the fear of the uh, atomic bomb, which was like the big threat at the time. Um, there was something there, that fear of, of science, that fear of the unknown, that... Uh, uh, that fascination of, of for science also. So how much of a prevailing fear was there in your town um, in Quebec um, because of this power plant? The thing is that the scientists were there to reassure us all the time. I think that me as a kid, I had the fear, but uh, uh, around me, the, the adults were uh, very excited by uh, Mm-hmm. <laughs> this, the economical potential of the of the of uh, those uh, powerful uh, devices. Uh, I didn't feel the fear until the, uh, uh, they were start explaining to us that if there was an accident and the wind was blowing in that direction, then you started to question <laughs> right. the technology. Everything's but fine unless until the, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. But uh, it was meant to be a very safe technology. It was just that um, unconscious fear of the atom. It's a power that uh, we are not supposed to... uh, We went too far. And uh, it's something that uh, you know inside yourself that it's like you're playing with the power of the stars. So, you know, there are atomic weapons in Dune Part 2, and one of the characters sort of thinks that they're going to be the the solution to all the problems. I was wondering um, when you did those scenes if you had been thinking about your hometown? When you, you do something as an artist, you're ta- always talking about your hometown. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think, uh, I will say, when I'm thinking about the Fremen, I'm thinking about uh, uh, French Canadians. Mm. Uh, the idea, the alienation of religion. The idea that the population is under the control of the church 
and that the the church uh, uh, is linked with the the, the politics, and that uh, for many years uh, uh, we were we didn't the the French Canadian did that they didn't have any economical power, and were under the control of the church and uh, and uh, um, submitted to this power where uh, the church was telling us where to uh, to vote. And it's very powerful. It's the absolute power. I mean, if you say to your, someone tells you, if you vote for this guy, you go to hell. Um, religion is a good thing, but it's not, it's not meant to be linked with politics. Was your family religious? Yes, uh, uh, my family was religious. Do you recall hearing about... Um, hell and and whether you would go there depending on how absolutely you I, I was raised as a Catholic mm-hmm. and I always say that I had like a, I really um, absolutely loved the the chants uh, there's something and it's a, the, one of the first discussion I had with uh, Anzimer was uh, about those uh, uh, church who wrote the score so, for for Dune. exactly exactly and and to have that kind of sacred power i mean though it was like a, a very uh, uh, inspiring um, those the the the, the chants that uh, we were singing as kids there was something i remember uh, um, being elevated <laughs> by a, uh, i'm not a religious person anymore but at the time uh, there was a time when, uh, as a kid I was, uh, uh, and uh, like everybody else, uh, uh, in my hometown. When you were young, like, how did you imagine what your adult life was going to be like? Did you see yourself staying in that town? That's a good question. Um, I will say that uh, uh, I became happy uh, when I landed in Mon- Montreal. Mm-hmm. Why? It's because finally. I was in contact with uh, uh, culture, with movie theaters, with museums, with big libraries, with bookstores. With uh, uh, I, I remember the first time I walked in Montreal as a young uh, adult, uh, the impression to be in Blade Runner. <laughs> I was like, uh, uh, I was absolutely deeply excited uh, uh, by uh, culture and and uh, the power of of uh, having all those. Uh, resources all around me to to learn more about uh, the world yeah well let's take a short break here um, if you're just joining us we're speaking with director denis villeneuve his movie dune part two comes out on friday more after a break this is fresh air listen to embedded for moments that stay with you i could smell the smoke i could smell the dust voices that resonate <laughs> stories that change the way you think about your life how how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Taylor Swift has dropped a new album. She is the biggest pop star in the world, and everything she does makes news. I gasped. I was like, oh my God, I've been there, and you can identify with it. For a breakdown of Taylor Swift and her new album, The Tortured Poets Department, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded. NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. So, Dini, I wanted to ask you about some of your earlier films. I thought um, 
I think the first film you made in the United States was Prisoners. Uh, this is a very brutal movie that takes place in Pennsylvania. Just to give a summary, two girls are kidnapped and a man played by Paul Dano is arrested. However, he's released because the police don't believe he could have done it. He has a very low IQ and there's no forensic evidence that he had kidnapped the girls. But one of the missing girls' fathers, uh, played by Hugh Jackman, has a strange interaction with Paul Dano's character that makes him think that he really is the kidnapper. And so he takes the law into his own hands, kidnaps Jones, and tortures him to try to get the information out of him. Um, it's a really hard movie to watch. Like the, the torture is is really difficult to watch. And the whole tone that you create in this movie is bleak. And like this screenplay was part of something called The Blacklist, which is like the most liked screenplays of the year not yet produced. And I think there was a lot of reluctance for people to make it because it was a hard movie. Was that part of the challenge for you? Yeah, the thing is, uh, I knew that uh, people were afraid of that project. You had to find a very fine line, but it felt very uh, relevant hmm. where we were at the time. It felt like uh, very meaningful to approach this this subject. This sort of thing of uh, people taking the law into their own hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the use of torture as a righteous thing and, and uh, the turmoil of emotional turmoil of, the, of that father trying to find morality. And it felt very disturbing and uh, meaningful. Uh, uh, there was something true about that story. Uh, how far are you ready to go? And, and um, uh, there was something honest about uh, this story that I, I felt was uh, relevant. There's this idea that the end justifies the means. Like exactly. if, I, if I torture this person and I find out where my daughter is, then it would have been worth doing those terrible things. That that also plays into part into your 2015 movie Sicario, um, which is about the U.S. Uh, drug enforcement of drugs coming in from Mexico. And like this movie, Emily Blunt is an FBI agent who joins this task force that's trying to bring down a Mexican drug cartel. It turns out like the task force is just using her position as a way to cover their extra legal behavior that they engage in. And they they sort of make this argument, we're keeping the monsters out by becoming monsters in Mexico. There's something about um, being a Canadian and being raised in the suburb of uh, United States, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm just right because you're you're right on the border, almost on yeah, the St. Yeah, Lawrence yeah. River, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's like um, um, I have been always fascinated by United States, the power, the the creativity in United States, the beauty of the United States, but also the threat sometimes of of that power and and. Uh, and the relationship of of the uh, the United States with the rest of the world, and uh, and uh, it's something that uh, absolutely fascinated me. And I thought that that border between Mexico and the United States was so meaningful, saying so many things about uh, the state of the world today. And so, both for me, there's a continuity between uh, um, prisoners and Sicario about an exploration of North America. I know I, when I say United States, I incorporate in a week Canada into it because yeah, we are neighbors. There's something we are like, it's not like a, a 
what happens in United States always has tremendous impact at home. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's like two societies that are like uh, embedded one into the other. But still, I'm not American. I have a, a kind of little distance that uh, allows me to sometimes, uh, I say that with humility, you know, to, just to have like a different perspective, which is, uh, I think, uh, uh, why maybe I'm working in the United States. Yeah. Mm. Sicario is kind of like an uh, anti-action movie in that like Emily Blunt is the protagonist and we kind of imagine that at some point she's going to like win like there are these people that are treating her poorly and she doesn't believe they're they're doing the right thing but but it sort of um it flips the audience's expectations because she she's powerless to stop these people like that then then to stop the wrong that's happening around her both movies have been made in a world after 911 mm. the idea that how far do we need to bend law in order to uh 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 find justice and and uh, or reparation or or a revenge or or uh, have control over the world um i think that's fair to say i didn't wrote those screenplays uh, but I thought they were absolutely uh, um, relevant about what they were saying about the state of the world at that time. Um, when I first saw your movie, Sicario, there was this aerial shot that really stuck with me. Um, there's this plane flying over this landscape of hills, and there's something just expressive about the hills themselves. And, you know, there's a there's a very similar aerial shot in Dune Part 1, where Paul is first flying over the sand dunes of Arrakis. You, you like those aerial shots, don't you? A long time ago, I, uh, I, I participated to, I was like an assistant. There's a, a documentary filmmaker, one of the most important Canadian filmmaker. His name is uh, Pierre Perrault. And Pierre invited me to a shoot in the, in the nearby the North Pole. We spent a month on the island of Elesmere Island. I was there to make the soup and bring the tripod. You know, it's a, <laughs> a, there, were, were, there was Pierre, uh, two cameramen, and uh, me and, uh, and another uh, uh, assistant like that. We were there to help. I was uh, out, just out of film school. And I, uh, I spent a, a month uh, uh, with him studying the landscape of uh, where you were and, and, and being in contact with... Uh, uh, the power of those landscapes and uh, Pierre taught me how to listen to a, the uh, landscape and how to uh, uh, create uh, uh, poetry out how to capture uh, uh, um, the there's something about landscape it's like human faces it's like uh, according to the light there's always something new and something uh, that you can bring kind of a, a meaning or a, a emotional impact or, or, or out of a uh, the landscape who, who, who is reflected on, on the character. I actually thought that the hills did look like faces. Like Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that is, uh, I spent a lot of time in the helicopter uh, shooting uh, uh, um, and uh, uh, it, there was something about absolutely mesmerizing about those landscapes and I, I started to study them with the camera and I remember uh, with Joe Walker when we, we did that shot Joe and I thought that it felt like uh, uh, faces that were screaming yeah. there was like a power in that landscape yeah, that uh, territory 
the the that place where there's a, a a landscape where the humans draw a line and a tremendous amount of violence happened because of that line and it's there's something about the power of the landscape that will prevail no matter what happened you know you you started making small independent films with shoestring budgets and unknown actors and now you're working like it's like an almost different planet you're making movies with Hundred million dollar budgets, huge crews. You said like eight hundred people in the desert, um, all A list actors. I just wonder if you could reflect on that. Well, actually, I, I made sure to uh, not make too big of a step between each project. Mm-hmm. I would have not been able to make Dune as my third movie. Some directors can. Uh, I'm always impressed by directors that can jump from uh, indie to massive Hollywood uh, budget at ease. Me, I, I needed to go step by step. I'm a slow learner and I, I needed to 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 uh, uh, slowly build stairs, uh, something solid under my feet. Um, so you intentionally I, did it incrementally. Yes. And the, the, because I didn't want to be crushed by the system, I was I wanted to keep control on creativity. And um, also, I will say that I approach those movies absolutely the same way as I did the indie movies, uh, which is that uh, at the end of the day, I'm with actors with a camera, and I, I try to uh, to keep it as intimate on set as possible. Um, it's like uh, I'm I'm uh, the big difference between the, the movies when I was young and now is the distance between the car and the camera <laughs> and and the amount of people around it but it's like uh, i'm i'm very uh, i have a strong capacity to forget about the, the 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 scope of things and focus on the intimacy with the actors Denis Villeneuve thank you very much for coming on fresh air today it was my pleasure thank you Denis Villeneuve spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. Villeneuve directed Dune Part 2, which opens in theaters Friday. He also directed Dune Part 1. The creators of the series The Good Wife and The Good Fight have a new drama series called Elsbeth. Our TV critic David Biancouli will have a review after a short break. This is Fresh Air. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR. Tomorrow, CBS presents the latest drama series from Michelle and Robert King, creators of The Good Wife and its spin-off series, The Good Fight. Their newest weekly series, episodes of which will stream the next day on Paramount+, is yet another extension of the franchise. It's called Elsbeth, 
and it stars Carrie Preston in the role she played in both those other series, eccentric but effective attorney Elsbeth Tassioni. But this time, Elsbeth has a new job, and she's in a new city. Our TV critic David Bianculi has this review. Carrie Preston won an Emmy Award in 2013 as Outstanding Guest Actress for her portrayal of a seemingly scatterbrained lawyer on the CBS series The Good Wife. Her character, Elsbeth Tassioni, really was a character. Her conversations tended to derail into unexpected directions. Her questions never seemed to follow any logical path, but they always had a purpose, and she was keenly, almost uncomfortably observant. Michelle and Robert King, the writing team that created The Good Wife to showcase Juliana Margulies, quickly recognized Preston's Elsbeth as a valuable supporting player. She appeared in six of the seven seasons of The Good Wife and won her Emmy there. Then she returned as the same character in The Good Fight, which the Kings wrote as a sequel series starring Christine Baranski. And now there's a third series, this time bringing Carrie Preston front and center. It's called Elsbeth, and all ten episodes have been written by co-creators Michelle and Robert King, with him directing the premiere episode. So what are they up to this time? They've transplanted Elsbeth from Chicago to New York City, where she's been hired to officially observe and secretly investigate some of the police there. In her new job, she's given so much latitude, she even can serve as an ad hoc murder investigator, and does. Elsbeth the series is structured like Poker Face, or even more obviously, Columbo. I've previewed three episodes, and each begins with viewers seeing the murderer commit the crime. And then, and only then, does Elsbeth enter the crime scene and start putting the puzzle pieces together. Each episode, as with Columbo, features a prominent guest star as the killer of the week. For the premiere episode of Elsbeth, no spoiler alerts here, because the murder is shown in the opening moments, Stephen Moyer from True Blood is the special guest star. He plays an acting teacher and director who has found a way to dispose of his much younger former student and lover by making it look like suicide. But when Elsbeth arrives at the victim's apartment, she ignores the dead body and heads straight for the bathroom, where she pokes around until a detective notices her and objects. But that's when we see how quickly and how sharply her mind processes things. What's going on here? Yeah. Uh, no, nothing. We were just talking. I'm Elsbeth. Yeah, I know. I would rather you wait in the hall, please, ma'am. Yes. I thought I made that clear. Uh, by the way, I'm not sure this is a suicide. In the hall, please. Yes. Why do you say that? Teeth whitening strips. I check her mouth because I don't know anyone who widens their teeth right before they commit suicide. And if she had her diaphragm in, she was probably expecting someone to have sex with. The police aren't sure what to make of her, of course. Wendell Pierce, that wonderful actor from The Wire, plays Captain Wagner, who is exasperated one moment, impressed the next, which is how everyone reacted to Elsbeth way back on The Good Wife. But as with Columbo, the most important dynamic is between the investigator and the killer. Elsbeth, like Columbo, is persistent and underestimated. But where Columbo kept his theories close to his vest, or his raincoat, Elsbeth almost delights in revealing her whole cards to unsettle her prime suspect. Carrie Preston and Stephen Moyer worked together on HBO's True Blood, and it's fun to see them together again here, this time as adversaries. 
You know, I'm glad I caught you. I'm sure you are. This odd thing I found. Do you mind if I show you? Does it matter? Yes, of course it, it matters. Um, this is a copy of the text that Olivia sent to her classmates a few minutes before she killed herself or was murdered. Can you see it there on my screen? Yes, I can. Do you need me to make it? No, it's fine. Okay. It says, I'm so sick of performing for idiots who don't understand what I'm doing. And then she writes, I'm done with it. The hiding who I really am. Do you see there are two spaces after every period? Okay. Do you know that's something that older people do? Not younger? Two spaces. Younger people like Olivia, they do just one space after every period. So what I did was I went back through Olivia's old texts. And do you know what? She always did one space. Other episodes shown to critics feature as the murderers of the week, Jane Krakowski from 30 Rock and Jesse Tyler Ferguson from Modern Family. Both of them bring a playful energy sparring with Preston's Elspeth, and she really sparkles with and without them and carries the series with ease. Also, the show's New York locations add even more to the flavor and the enjoyment. Altogether, they make Elsbeth an undeniable throwback to an earlier TV era. But so is Poker Face, which I love for many of the same reasons. Great leading role, delightful guest stars, decent clever mysteries that are solved by the end of each episode. And, in an era where so much TV is so dark and depressing, Elsbeth stands out as a sweet, happy little treat. David Biancooli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new series Elsbeth. It premieres tomorrow on CBS. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about the impact of Christian nationalism on American democracy, including the movement's connections to Donald Trump and attempts to overturn the election. My guest will be Brad Onishi, author of Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. He co-hosts the podcast, Straight White American Jesus. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on the show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Teresa Madden. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity. It tells you there is more to uncover. How, how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth... Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. 
Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts.